Hello, DMP listeners. This is Robespierre again, chiming in for just a moment to say that because our conversation with Alex Smith of Cyberize.me naturally segmented into two main categories, we've decided to release it as a two-parter. Part one will cover biohacking, and part two will cover infosec. So without any more from me, let's dive right into the biohacking portion of our conversation with Alex Smith. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Joining us on the program tonight, Cooper is admin who lives open source solutions and Cursor, a software dev with a master's specializing in RF technology. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Sings, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousSings.com. We'd also like to thank our other sponsor, Axion VPN, who is our solution for keeping our traffic on the internet protected and private. To learn more about the services they provide, please go to AxionVPN.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and or email us at info at DangerousMinds.io and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. This week on Dangerous Minds podcast, we have Alex Smith, founder of Cyberize Me. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us what biohacking, grinding and transhumanism means to you and your own grind as it were i suppose i kind of got into the whole grinding biohacking scene when i was in my you know early 20s basically i spent too much time reading science fiction in high school and i was just wanted to like be a cyborg and that's not really possible today but i got the next best thing i got as close as i possibly can in the real world which is you know, implanting microchips and all the other stuff that we do. So that's really how I started, got into this whole field. I studied computer science um, at university. So that's how I sort of have some, you know, skills and qualifications, maybe not directly in cybernetics as such, but definitely a very much related and uh, useful field. You, you said just there that you consider that you always wanted to be a cyborg, but you're not a cyborg yet. What would be your definition well, of and what stops us reaching that? I, that's, that's definitely a, 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 can be a very in-depth question. I mean, some people argue that everyone who uses technology to, you know, go beyond uh, the limits of what a naked human being can do is a cyborg in some ways, since they are adapting their own abilities. I mean, some people say, well, everyone who wears glasses is a cyborg because they are using a piece of technology that's just you know, always on their body without this piece of technology they can't see. And those are totally reasonable questions. And then, you know, us with implants, that takes it a step further. We not only have used external technology to advance our abilities, but it's actually inside our bodies. And so there's definitely a blurred line between what's not a cyborg and what really is a cyborg. And when I say it's not possible, what I really mean is science fiction type cyborgs where we can upload our consciousness to the net and, you know, we all have these huge metal arms that are like 50 times stronger than natural arms. That's not possible yet. I mean, there's definitely inroads into that with our, some of our chips, like the magnet, magnetic implants allowing a sixth sense. Like that's definitely, that is definitely a type of cyborg 
implant. It's just a very minor one compared to what is probably going to be possible in the future. Definitely uh, agreeing with you as far as the cyborg bits, because when I think of that word, I think of like Shadowrun, something uh, far-fetched like that, or skin jobs from Blade Runner, but does also make me curious uh, as far as you know, your day jobs and network security, right? Um, has that played any role in any of the implants that you have uh, tried to research and develop uh, along with uh, Cyberize Me? To some extent, yes. There's definitely, there's definitely some relation there. So a lot of the sort of building access systems that office buildings and that type of thing use have very weak security and it can allow them to be, the cards, the access cards to be so there's definitely some overlap there between the sort of security side of things and the cybernetics. It's definitely, you know, I was the first person to start copying the access cards rather than just implanting a chip with an ID and then adding it to the system rather than this allows a much more easy installation, I suppose you could say, where you can just copy an existing card and you don't need permission from the owner or that sort of thing. So there's definitely some overlap for sure. Have you um, ever had any issues with the implants you have and your day job? So being, you know, security. Uh, I know a lot of the questions we got over at DEFCON was the fact of I wouldn't be allowed in secure facilities if I had an implant. Do you ever come across anything like that? No, I haven't had a problem with it. Like most people obviously don't even know because these are tiny implants. They're not visible. I can, like you said, walk into a secure facility and like, Unless they actually run an x-ray on me, like the metal detectors don't pick them up. So they're going to have no idea. But most of the time I tell people about it. And to be honest, they're actually really, they think it's really cool. They're like, wow, that's really awesome and stuff. So I haven't run into any problems with it, no. Going back a little bit, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the origin and the mission behind uh, the company you founded, Cyberize.me? Uh, it must be about ooh, Six, seven years ago now, um, I got my first implant just as a user, not like building them myself. I just bought it. It was originally one of the Haworth uh, magnets. And I just wanted to like extend my own abilities. I, at the time, I had no intention of like, starting a company or anything. I just thought it was cool and I wanted an implant. And I really wanted to push the boundaries. Like the implant I had was awesome, but it was so limited compared to like what we can imagine is, you know, should be possible. And so I started, started doing research into what it would take to build an implant and the amount of like money and technology that needs to be developed to make that happen. And I thought, you know, this is doable, but it's a, a huge amount of work to develop a new implant. And so when I had the idea for the Firefly implants, which are a type of subdermal implant that glows in the dark, I thought I can maybe sell these implants and use any money generated from them to help fund the R&D for more advanced implants. And so it was never like getting into it and thinking, you know, I'm going to make a bunch of money. It was always like, I want to have really advanced implants, but I don't have the money or the time to develop them. If I can start a company behind it, then I can sort of use any proceeds to generate to research more advanced implants and then use the proceeds from that to generate to work on even more advanced implants and hopefully sort of snowball it into the kind of science fiction implants we were talking about before from Shadowrun. So you mentioned uh, using previous implants for uh, revenue to 
help advance and create new implants and advance the tech in the area. Have you partnered with any other groups like uh, or companies or you know makers groups or uh, university programs to try and develop newer hardware, newer tech? I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of um, Casox or uh, Jeffrey, as he is known. Uh, he's a guy in California. He has a lab there. He runs a bunch of sort of biohacking camps and sessions and stuff. And he does a bunch of research on stuff. And I, you know, work quite closely with him in developing new implants and new technology. So that's one example of someone I sort of, we're not official partners or anything, but we definitely work closely together on, you know, developing new technology. So you can tell by your accent that you're from Australia. Um, what's mm-hmm. the cyborg community like there, especially with um, recent issues with like a um, meow, Ludo meow meow with the, in terms of implants for, for transport, etc. Do you have any issues with that and local governments down there? So it's not too bad. So well, first off, there are a few grinders in Australia. There's not a lot of us. Like, yeah, um, you know, guy in, like you said, in uh, Brisbane, you know, there's two or three of us down in Melbourne, a couple of guys in Sydney, one or two guys who do it in Perth. But like, there's a few, not, certainly not, um, it's not common, but there are some people. It's generally fairly relaxed, the sort of the laws and regulations around it. And Australia tends to, so different from America, where America is very, it's very easy to sue someone for like, civil damages and stuff. Australia is very unlike that where unless you're actually doing committing a crime of some kind, sort of something really bad, like it's very difficult to sue someone. So as long as there's no malicious intent involved, it's quite easy to to do implants. You don't need a license to be involved with it, that sort of thing. You can implant someone as long as they give their consent uh, without worrying too much about being sued or anything if something goes wrong. Furthering the discussion with this, uh, one of our previous guests, Patrick Kramer, mentioned uh, having issues with importing needles in bulk for implants, what have you, and uh, customs kind of freaking out, going, "Are these drugs? Or is this a you know some sort of weapon? What it, what is this?" And you know, being confused by you know, implants and electronics, uh, we're curious really can you tell us if there are any if you've had any struggles with your own company importing exporting implants and kits into um you know the australian continent or other areas like you you've um one time we, when we were previously trying to talk set up this interview you were in china just makes me curious <laughs> that much more with uh, with your travels have you had any issues you know dealing with other governments as well like uh, China's pretty locked down, hates Bitcoin, uh, as we've been seeing in the news. How do they feel about implants yeah. and uh, the grinding community there? Have you experienced that yourself? So with regard to Australia, some things are fine, like needles and like microchip implants. The government doesn't care. Like They're just like, okay, whatever. We assume you're going to use it on animals like as a vet or a farmer, but we don't care if you use it on a human. It doesn't matter. So in that regard, it's fine. But there are some interesting laws like lidocaine, the local anesthetic, that is prescription only in Australia, and I can't legally import it. So I have to, you know, source it overseas and distribute it overseas, and I can't actually bring it into the country. And another interesting thing is the very small, powerful magnets that we use for implants. 
they are banned because they are hazardous small children. So I have had some of those confiscated uh, by customs before. So uh, yeah, I have run into some issues. Is it a uh, border force you have down there? It yeah, seems like the strictest border control I've ever seen. I don't know if that's true. Dr- dr- like yeah. TV show or not, but yeah, they um they can be quite. I mean, some things are fine, but they can be, especially related to food and stuff. Anything that they think might bring in diseases is definitely quite harshly cracked down on. Um, you mentioned China, and yeah, I go there for business-related reasons um, from time to time, and they are well. Obviously, there are issues about information control and censorship and stuff there, um, just with regard to the general internet, but. More specifically about implants, the Chinese culture is not widely accepted that people get like tattoos and stuff like they do in the West. It's like if you get a tattoo, it's sort of seen as a bad thing and potentially you're involved with a criminal organization or something. So people are much more hesitant to think about body mods and stuff, much, yeah, much more hesitant than they are in the West. So I don't think I know any Chinese people who have implants, even though I've been there and met lots of interesting people. So it's quite... Uh, much less common than we would see. Follow up on that real quick. Um, you don't know of any grinders in China? No, I've like I've talked to people about it. I know people who think it's cool and interesting, but I don't know of anyone in China who has an implant. No. Oh wow, that's pretty shocking from our own perspective. Yeah, I mean it's, it's like a huge country, and it's uh-huh. so surprising that well, it's not. I mean, yeah, it's part of the cultural sort of defiling your body and stuff. It's just quite different there. Hmm. Well, from, from an InfoSec kind of um, standpoint, what's the adoption of RFID like in China? In terms of just general use, it's very common. Like they use RFID credit cards and building access and subway and buses. Uh, it's yeah, all over the place, everywhere. So it seems, it seems as you say, to be a cultural sort of uh, bridge as opposed to the fact that, you know, like, um, uh, it's not so much of a concern of the technology that you might find more in the Western cultures. It's more of the actual modification. Yeah, it's about change, sort of modifying your body that's quite a radical idea there, much more so than in the West. I mean, the technology is, I would argue, in, in some ways, in a lot of ways, in the big cities anyway, more advanced, more widely used than in the West. But, yeah, it's just a cultural thing, cultural body image thing. So you say you've sort of spoken to some people about it anyway, um, and just generally, no matter where you are, what what kind of thing would you say to someone that's getting started in biohacking or getting their first implant? And sort of in your own experience, what does it take to, to take that first step? So there's a few things that sort of newcomers generally sort of a few big things they, I don't know, hurdles maybe or things they want to think about. One is obviously sort of the safety around it, you know, by putting something in their body, they want to make sure that there's no side effects or risks. And some of the more advanced implants, there may be some risks involved, but the basic microchips are generally very safe. So that's usually, as long as they're talking simple implants, which most people are for their first implant, it's usually not a big problem. Another thing is, you know, are they going to you know, make use of it? They don't want to go through all this implant something in your body if it's not going to be useful and that really depends on you know what situation and does their city have a clonable transit metro card uh, or their office building so it's sort of a finding some use case for them so that they can actually use their everyday life and that's you know most people 
can. Most people do have some situation where they can use it, but it's definitely, you know, helping them identify what they as an individual can do with it. Another, obviously, maybe not for everybody, other people who have like a general body mod people, they don't care, but people who are maybe technology focused and not so much focused on body mod stuff, they care about the pain involved, which for the injectable, the simple injectable implants is usually reasonably small. Like the amount of pain is not that big, but something that a lot of people ask about. Talking about uh, your magnets a, a moment ago, you had mentioned that the the small magnets used often enough in like fingertips would have your outlawed in Australia. Does that actually affect your own research into coatings, what have you, since it's kind of hard to re then source it, I would think, uh, in, in Australia, right? Yeah, it's a major, you know, stumbling block for me. I have, I had, like I had a shipment with a, of magnets that was worth, you know, hundreds of dollars and the customers just took it and destroyed it and they didn't give me any compensation or, you know, option to allow me to import them and they just said, you know, these are banned, you can't have them. Yes. What implants do you currently have for our listeners and also um, what kind of implants do you either want to sort of uh, make or develop in the future? Have you ever had any removed, any issues with any of them? Right now, I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six implants. I've got one of my original Haworth magnet, uh, sensing magnet. I've got a couple of different NFC uh, implants, the temperature sensor, and a low-frequency rewritable one implant for unlocking doors and stuff, uh, and one of the Firefly version 2 that I'm testing out. You asked, have I had any issues and have I had to remove any? I've removed a couple, but not because they were causing me problems, just because I put them in and wanted to check that the coatings were holding up sufficiently to make sure they were safe. So I took them out to examine them and make sure that there wasn't any degradation of the coating over time within the body. Uh, so I've had a few taken out, but it's been relatively painless. Well, I wouldn't say pain. There have been any major complications or anything with them. Do you have... Uh, that many due to like testing or do you have different uses for each one of them and what kind of thing do you use them for? Some of them I put in just for testing and I haven't bothered taking them out because it's sort of hassle. Um, some of them I use like literally every day. I copied the access card to my apartment building and uh, like I use it multiple times a day as I go in and out. It's like really, really convenient. So some of them like the temperature center, like I have it cause I want to test it and it's kind of cool, but I very rarely actually use it. And some of them, like the door access one, I yeah use it multiple times a day and it's really useful. So it really depends upon the particular implant. Some of them are amazingly useful and some of them are just like, oh, that's kind of cool. You also asked about like what I want to get in the future. And I mean, like the list is you know more than we can talk about. I mean, obviously what I'd love to get, but in terms of like actual practical stuff, well, semi-practical stuff that, you know, is probably doable. I'd like some really secure implants for like data integrity, crossing borders and that sort of thing because the current NFC implants and RFID implants, like they offer some security, but it's not going to stand up to any serious cryptoanalysis. Like I can break the keys on my implants within a few minutes and take the data off. I want something that's going to be offering me like real security I'm working on. Another thing, obviously something that a lot of people would like to do is Sort of mobile payments, just swipe your hand at the you know checkout. That's obviously kind of difficult because the big credit card companies are not 
totally, you know, on board with these DIY small projects and stuff. But if that was possible, I'd really like to get that. You mentioned uh, really secure data. Uh, it just uh, lends me to think about Johnny Mnemonic from, you know, 80s sci-fi. But I would hope since you're in uh, InfoSec, you know how broken encryption can be, especially with, you know, using free tools like John and uh, Hashcat. Just uh, you destroy passwords and, and encryption, what have you, encryption keys as well. Just uh, makes me then say, what would be more your ideal than type of implant just to get some more information uh, from you on that topic? Uh, yeah, for sure. So, oh yeah, like this is Proxmite 3. It's an open source device that allows cracking like a lot of the more standard older generation uh, NFC cards. And what I want and what I, well, actually, I should say, what I have, well, I don't actually have one implanted, but I have some like of these implants test test versions here in my lab, and that is a Desfire uh, 8K chip, which gives us more data, you know, storage capability, but also like AES certificate authentication and stuff. So it's got some really, as far as we know, unbroken crypto functions, which should give me pretty good security. I did quite a lot of research into RFID adoption and, and security. I mean, you, uh, as, you, as you know, you, you sort of talk about the AES um, and triple DES encryption that the DESFire EV1 cards have. Um, and the current adoption of really poorly um, secure cards as well. And I was wondering sort of what research you've done in that area. And also, I know you've created a number of products that sort of take advantage of those security flaws. I don't know if you can talk through some of those that you have. You mentioned like triple DES and stuff, and that's definitely reasonably secure. I have talked to some people in sort of um, hardware design and stuff, and they said if you could afford the kind of money to design an ASIC, so you know, actually design a new silicon chip, you could probably break triple DES within a couple of hours. So you and I, we couldn't break it, but if you're crossing a border into a major country, they probably have the kind of money to crack that, you know, triple DES without too much hassle. So I like, I wouldn't want to, you know, risk my life on a triple DES encryption. As you said, I have taken advantage of some of the tools out there, like the Proximite 3 and some of the other LibNFC and stuff. Like I have done some research into NFC myself, like actual raw cracking and stuff, like particularly, for example, the um, iClass, because that's, uh, quite widely used, but it's not so easy to copy. You need the factory keys and things. But there's definitely a lot of open source tools, and I've written sort of interfaces and put them in simple devices so that even people who don't have a vast knowledge of the low-level sort of command line, can you compile it and can you run these commands, can just you know use a click button and you know copy your keys to your implant. So it's definitely something I have spent a lot of time working on, yes. I think you're referring to the sort of the meet in the middle attack with the triple DES encryption, which reduces it by, you know. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, There's some, you know, key reduction and stuff. You can get it down to semi-plausible yeah. lengths of um, entropy. Yes. Um, so in regards to that, when, when you, you, you're sort of talking about AES encryption being the sort of the, the method to go for, at the moment, there doesn't appear to be many implants that do have any, any level of security. So 
what kind of things I know you're talking about you would like to be able to go through borders maybe some sort of like path system what other um, things would an implant have to have that kind of level of encryption for I suppose the obvious answer is like payment if it was storing like Bitcoin wallets and stuff you want it to actually be secure you don't want to have someone be able to steal your money because obviously like there's lots of different institutions and stuff in the world that care about security. I mean, you have, you know, small businesses and government agencies and all these kinds of things. But in my experience working in the information security industry, I think that banks have, you know, they put the most effort into security because they have like actual money that people are trying to steal. So I think obviously, yeah, if you're storing private keys that allow you to access currency access money on and that would be another reason for having actual good security what current projects are you working on and how are you incorporating with some of the implants that you already offer and might have already in your own body so like one of the things like i was just talking about these more secure implants with aes and that kind of thing i have some prototypes here i just have to find ways to scale them up or mass produce them so that other people can have them. So I have this fire chip in an implant in an injectable form factor, which is quite nice. Um, I know Dangerous Things has one, but this is a flexible one. And so the amount of effort implanted is quite high. And for a lot of people, that's, you know, a big barrier to get into it. And so this one, you just, you know, same as the NFC ones and RFID, you just inject it, which is much easier, much quicker. So that's definitely something that I'm, hoping to sort out. There's just a few issues with soldering and stuff, but there's no um, fundamental issues there. So I hopefully should have that out reasonably soon. What other stuff? Uh, oh, one of the issues that a lot of, well, maybe not a lot of people, but some people have come across is with the rewritable RFID that I was talking about to use to open the door to my apartment building, it is only capable of storing one ID at a time. So if you have an apartment and an office building and a gym, and they all use RFID cards, you need three implants or you need to constantly rewrite your implant for the next building. And that's you know, not ideal. Something that I have sort of rough designs for, but there are some issues that need to be resolved is a single chip that has multiple IDs on it. And so you could store access to multiple buildings on a single implant. That sounds pretty cool. Going from the from sorry, I have a few questions from from the first one talking about um, an implantable versus a flex type device. What kind of issues do you see in terms of uh, like read range? I know if you look at the implantable um, tags versus the sort of the flex mm. model that are out, you, you see a lot of difference between read range. Do you have that same effect with the, with the ones you're looking at now? Yeah, I mean, definitely. The larger the antenna, the better the read range and the trade-off. Do you want to have, like, actually have to use a scalpel and spend 30 minutes cutting a hole under the skin and everything to put it in? And there are some issues with on, ongoing issues with the flex. For example, I've, I've had a couple of people who have had flexible implants, but after you know six months, a year, the constant flexing causes the antenna to uh, generate a crack in the antenna, and then it stops working. Whereas with the you know glass-coated injectable implants there's no movement of the implant itself. And so they last, you know, effectively forever. I've never had one of those fail. So yes, there is a much shorter read range on the injectable implants than the flex, but for a lot of people, it's an acceptable trade-off. So it's just sort of, you know, not everyone's for it, but most people will think it's a reasonable trade-off. I definitely agree with you. Um, 
and you, you talked about sort of like a, a chip that sort of adapts to, to what reader you're going to use. So it stores many different types of IDs. Is that going to be something like Java based or is there any sort of clues going on behind the, the scenes there? Well, it's it's not it's not Java based. This is well, the the first version that I'm working on is just going to be for RFID. So it's not going to be like ideally you'd have one chip that does you know every system, but that's you know quite a significant amount of work involved. So the first version I'm working on is just RFID, so just low frequency. It's really quite simple. It just has a number of stored IDs and encoding schemes, and it basically just you when you present a power, it loops through all of the stored IDs. And because they only take you know, a few milliseconds each to transmit, um, it's not really noticeable the delay while it loops through all of the IDs and then the reader gets the right ID. Maybe it'll beep red, you know, failed a couple of times when it gets wrong IDs, but once it gets the right one, it'll be accepted and it's all open. It's kind of like a, uh, a dictionary attack for RFID, which I quite like. Yes, I did actually see a tool for cracking RFID doors, but... You needed to know the site ID to make it feasible. If you knew the site ID, you could crack a RFID door within two or three minutes, which is totally feasible. But if you don't know the site ID and it's a pure brute force attack, then it could take about five years. So there are some limitations to what sort of attacks are possible. That makes sense. Um, so with all these sort of like products that you're making, the projects that you're working on, etc., how do you ensure the safety of the projects you're making? It depends on the product, but... A lot of it is about like reusing known safe materials. So, for example, if I reuse the glass capsules that, you know, for a new implant, for example, the new secure NFC implants, if I just reuse the same glass capsules that have been used for all of the previous implants, then I don't have to go about retesting the glass because I already know it's perfectly safe. So that's a big part of sort of not having to reinvent the wheel for every implant is reusing known safe things. And particularly for the like RFID implants, we know that like the low frequency electromagnetic coupling and stuff is you know not harmful to the body. It's not ionizing. There's no risks involved there. So I don't have to test that the radiation involved in an RFID implant is safe. We already know that's safe. And because it's no, it's not like the antenna and the chip is not exposed to the body. I don't have to worry about the cryptotelic facility. Oh, well, I do to some extent. I mean, obviously you don't want to have like lead or other terrible toxins in it but I don't to worry that it make it that it's perfectly biocompatible because it's not going to be exposed to the body so there's several ways to sort of shorten the process and decrease the amount of testing that has to be involved in a new implant because if you had to test everything from scratch there would be a huge amount of time and money involved in that but there's a lot of ways to decrease the amount of testing required Going back just to the previous uh, question before the last one, you were mentioning uh, you know, if you had the side ID, it would be a much easier thing. How would you get the side ID then uh, to follow up on that? Would you be trying to sniff it from the card, read it from the card physically if you were able to get your hands on one, or just trying to sniff it from the reader, what have you, while just doing a network survey and trying to study the infrastructure? Well, it would depend upon the type of card in use because there's a number of them but if we're talking about just a very basic low frequency RFID you can actually get like surprisingly good read ranges off those with very powerful antennas so you can buy like an antenna for two three hundred dollars connected up to some simple electronics like an Arduino 
and you can read a card from you know about a meter away, which is, I guess a few feet for the Americans. So you can have that in a backpack and you can just walk by someone or stand near a door and actually skim their card, not just the site ID, but the entire card ID. So they walk through and you know you have a, your device just reads it as they walk by, you make a copy on the fly and you can just walk right through after them. So low frequency is very, very easy to copy and steal. High frequency is much more difficult because the read range is lower and a lot of the cards have keys and the keys, they can be broken, they're not high security, but it takes time and so you have to you know, have access to the card for you know, potentially several minutes to be able to break those keys. Were you able to make it to DEF CON this past year? I was there the year before, but not this one. Okay, because uh, a buddy of mine from Houston, uh, Dennis Modano, did uh, an upgrade of an op open source project that you, know, you, you could find uh, called the RF-tastic Thief. But instead of their design, which used a, a, a board to augment it, he did it with a Raspberry Pi Zero and proved the capability of it. But he also used, uh, not just for the low frequency, the normal parking lot uh, or garage antenna, he found a similar one for high frequency and did the similar de design as well and got both uh, really good distance reading for high and low frequency with that. I haven't seen a, a write-up released hmm. on that, but he did present uh, during, during DEF CON. So as soon as they post that to their YouTube channel, it should be available for your review. Okay, it's a really good design. Sounds pretty cool. And it yeah, also dumps to your phone too. The information it sniffs. Cool. That does sound interesting. I have to look into it. For like right. long range reading on high frequency is definitely very difficult. But if someone's figured out how to do it, that would really open up a lot of attack vectors. Indeed. Uh, yeah, definitely look into uh, Linus or Dennis Malano. And uh, after this, I can uh, ping you the through email the more information on that so you can reach out and uh, see if he publishes it to his blog or what have you yet. I haven't seen it yet. He, he presented on that originally um, at ISSW, which is InfoSec Southwest in Austin, Texas, before as just a sneak peek before DEF CON. And that's when he showed the full talk uh, and perfected device there. Alex, he has um, highlighted a question here about getting admin privileges by changing, like once you have a site ID, changing the card ID. And yes, that's something um, is, that is possible. If you have the site ID and one valid card ID, you can scan up and down the range from that known point. And it's often possible to find a more privileged uh, access ID. And so, yes, that is definitely an attack that people have done and it works reasonably well. So referring to is like, um, you know, buildings where everyone has access to the front door, but some places might be locked by some unique IDs. You're saying you can just go up and down the, the spectrum of the end of, say, an ID, for example, because um, they're usually given out. Yes, right? it's, yeah, it's not guaranteed to work, but it often works. Where, for example, a server room will be very highly privileged, and most general office workers will not have access to that room. But you know, obviously, the server admins will. And if you have one of the general office workers' IDs, yeah, you can scan up and down the very last few digits of the range, and you will often get more highly privileged access. So yeah, that is a reasonable attack that people have done. So back to talking about implants. Um, very curious as far as you know, reaching into uh, 
basically more imagination at this point. What do you feel as far as what's available now that's truly missing in the world? And, you know, what, what do you hope would be developed, say, in the next year or in the next five years, really, just to try and, try and see where you hope to see um, biohacking heading? Well, I think the obvious one that sort of a lot of people who are like they, they first getting into it and like, hey, can I do this? And and even people who are more advanced and think, you know, we should be able to do this. And that is like payment. We get a lot of, I don't know about in America, but here we have a lot of you know, like PayWave cards where they have a NFC chip embedded in the credit card and you just go up to, you know, pay for things and you just tap the card and it's paid for. That is something that a lot of people are like, hey, can I do this? Why can't I do this? Why can't I just buy an implant that lets me pay for groceries? And I think that's definitely something I think should be possible. And there's no technological reason why it's not. It's more a bureaucratic reason where the you know, huge credit card companies are not willing to share their technology with you know little startups and that sort of thing. So this should be possible. It's not. Uh, like I'd like to see that problem solved. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do this. Do you think um, one solution for that, um, just just on your own opinion, would be you, you talk about changing transport cards and cloning, but would it be possible to take, say, like a payment card that already has all those privileges and almost make it into an implant, or is that kind of like a pipe dream? No, like that's actually a reasonable thing. Like you can pull the card out of a credit card. You can pull the chip out of a credit card and you know coat it in silicon or some other biocompatible coating and have it work. Now there are some issues with that. For example, there are anti-tampering mechanisms built into credit cards to try and prevent people from doing similar. Well, not to prevent people from doing this. The companies don't care if you change the form factor of your card, but they do care about people who are trying to extract the key information and other private details from the credit card chip. So it's quite, I have tried to do this before and I have destroyed several credit cards in the process. So it's not easy, but it's not impossible either. Just wondering how many cards you can get through with, with one bank before they start saying, well, where, how do you keep losing all these cards? <laughs> yeah, I actually tried cards from a few different people. So that's how I avoided this, um, you know, stopping my card. <laughs> Fair play. So with everything you've done, what would you say is your single best moment of achievement? Hmm. I mean, there's a few things come to mind. It's very satisfying to finally see an implant finished because, I mean, a lot of people, unless they're making their own implants, a lot of people just buy an implant and implant and start using it. And for them, the process is relatively straightforward. Like you find an implant online or in a physical store, you buy it, you implant it, it heals, and you use it forever you want. But to actually build an implant from scratch is I know, a huge amount of work. So seeing people use an implant is really like, I've made it. Like it actually works. It's really successful. Like that's a really good feeling. You know, you actually, you started from design, you like I had an idea, and then I put all this time into researching how feasible it was and what if there going to be any problems. And then I put a lot of time into actually physically building the chip and doing all of the biocompatible coatings and then telling and people like you go to a conference with biohackers and it's like, you're actually using my chip in the real world. That's so cool. Just a little bit further on that. You, you talk about just uh, like the gratification. It's done. It's being used. 
what further being the artist or the creator that makes these things that people put in their body, what kind of feedback have you gotten over your time since you've been doing this for a couple of years now? Uh, have you been getting from your users? Uh, has it helped you to go further to try and develop more or is it at times kind of difficult? You know, give us a little bit more of the the guy behind it. It's like, do you feel encouraged by it or is it more just a struggle to be like, why am I doing this crap kind of thing? Most of the feedback I get is really positive. Like, I really love your implants. It was simple to implant and it does exactly what I want. And now I can, you know, open my apartment building door or, you know, get on the bus with it. And this is, thanks so much for building this, making this a thing. So most of the feedback is really good, and it's, it's definitely encouraging to hear that. Sometimes, you're right, I get feedback, and they're like, the chip doesn't work for what I want to do, and it's I can't copy my university card because the wrong type. And then I'm like, I, this is so bad, I'm so sorry that you have an implant that you can't use now because it's the wrong type of chip. And so sometimes it's really sort of hard, but most of the you know, feedback is really good. So. Generally, I'm happy, and it's not a big problem, but occasionally you get someone who's like, oh, I'm so sorry that you have this implant that yeah, doesn't do exactly what you need. Just taking that a uh, little bit further, you know, what feedback have you gotten from competitors and other likewise uh, developers in the area? Like, I wouldn't say like Grindhouse or like Rich Lee would be direct competitors, but they're also makers in the movement. So then I would, I would then say, do you get encouragement from them to be able to partner, to be able to develop more ideas uh, or is it more difficult to uh, handle the politics between, uh, between groups, between countries too? You know, you got makers across the world. How, how does that affect your day to day? Just trying to come up with the next thing, the, the next idea. Yeah. So for most of the groups out there, like obviously it's, uh, dangerous things and they're direct competitors so we have you know some conflicts of interest but for most of the people like you said richly and Grindhouse and stuff they're not really competing so much as we're just working in a very you know related area and so when i meet them at conferences and stuff it's more like hey cool what are you working on oh i'm working on this and oh i solved this problem by doing that and stuff and so it's very much more uh, it's, it's good to talk to them and sort of share and you know bounce ideas off each other and that sort of thing so it's really, most of the time, it's very uh, harmonious and cooperative. So it's usually pretty good, yeah. And have you been able to partner with uh, with any of them other than, like, uh, you had mentioned Cassex earlier and, you know, worked with them? Have you, have you attempted to, like, uh, work with uh, Rich and see, you know, if there's anything you can help with or if there's any interest that he might have in some of your, your stuff as well? It just seems to me that... Uh, this is why I ask it. It's it's such a small community. Well, why you know why why not work together to advance the technology that much further, and in other areas where other people haven't really considered what is possible, what the technology can do yet, instead of fighting uh, for such a small you know, market share. Well, there's definitely uh, some opportunity there. Like the couple of guys you mentioned, I haven't actually worked with them directly on, on projects, but there are other people, like there's a couple of European grinders that I'm currently working with, like they're designing some hardware and I'm doing coatings and stuff. So there's definitely cooperation happening out there with other grinders in the field. But I think 
perhaps the biggest reason why there's not as much cooperation as there could be is because the field is so young, there's so many options, there's so many implants that can be built and everyone's like, I want to do this. And someone's like, I want to do the totally different thing. And there's no really not so much overlap. And so people end up working on their pet project that they are really passionate about. And maybe like, I mean, don't get me wrong, Rich's headphones are really cool, but it's not like something that I am so passionate about. I'm more focused on the security sort of copying cards and that sort of thing to implants. And so I think it's just such a wide area of work going on that sometimes there's not as much overlap as you might think. So if somebody was you know, working truly in uh, trying to develop a secure payment platform, then you would be open to collaboration uh, to try and develop it and make it more secure or what have you. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. I mean, if there's someone actually working on something that I am you know, really passionate about, someone who's actually has some good ideas for a payment platform, yeah, I would love to work with them on that because it's something that I care about. I mean, it's not like the other implants, I think they're cool, but it's just like, I don't have so much time in a day. I can't work on every different you know, implant that's going on out there. I got you. Everybody has a day job and you, know, you got to pay the bills somehow, right? But, you know, with all yeah. the projects and implants you've mentioned and passions you've mentioned, really, what is the biggest impact you want to make? What is your aim? Uh, and what do you be remembered for? Say, Someone Googles your name. What do you hope pops up first? Fair question. So, like, like I said, the whole reason I got into the whole reason I started doing this is because I want to be a cyborg-like in the science fiction novels and in the movies. I don't want to just be a guy who has, like, a few implants in his hand. I want to completely revamp my body and replace a whole bunch of stuff. And I don't want to limit it to just, like, some little bits. I want everything done. I, I don't need biological legs i can completely replace them as soon as the tech is you know mature enough and i want to be one of the guys who do that i want to be you know they look back and like right now you talk about like bill gates and you know apple founders and google founders i want to be one of those guys you look back and like and he's one of the guys who made the world the way it is today who actually started right when people were working in garages and you know cutting themselves open with a scalpel and using alcohol as disinfectant. He was one of those guys who started it right back in the day, and now he is, you know, full cyborg type thing. One of our previous conversations with uh, with Tim Cannon, one of the co-founders of Grindhouse Wetware, when we asked a similar question, he was like, I want to be a spaceship. And it nice. kind of threw us off. It was just like, you know, explain further. And he's like, well... You know, meat in space doesn't exist, doesn't work. He doesn't want to, doesn't want a suit. He wants to be a spaceship. He wants to truly uh, be there experiencing it fully. What do you want to be? I want to be able to fully upload my consciousness into the net. Like I know there are people who argue that that's not ever going to be possible. I think it is. I think it's just a matter of technology. Uh-huh. And I want to like one day just leave my body, my flesh and blood body behind and let it die you know, of, of old age and completely live in the information network and no need to, you know, ever have a physical body again. There's no reason to keep this body once it's worn out. I don't want it anymore. So you want to be the ghost in the shell, literally? Yes. Very good. Exactly. That is one that is my all time favorite enemy. It is. Yeah. I want to be the ghost in the shell. I don't want to have a body anymore. Nice. 
So for people who want to keep up for when that happens, what's the best way of keeping up to date with your projects, your work, and, and what, you're, what you're up to? Official sort of product releases and sort of big events will go out on Twitter, um, on the Cyberize Me Twitter account. If people are more interested in sort of keeping up to date with the ongoing things, like as they happen and stuff that I'm working on, uh, definitely hit up the Biohack Me forum where I will often post day-to-day -day updates and stuff about where projects are at and that sort of thing. Are there any final comments or questions that you had for us? It can be anything. I don't know. How do you think the interview has gone? I think it's good. I think uh, we covered a lot and just makes me curious to see what comes next out of your own projects, out of you know any possible collaborations in the future, really. I'm, but that's pretty much what I want to see out of it, the whole field. I'm curious to see what human ingenuity when uh, allowed to incorporate other ideas, other perspectives from around the world creates because perspective is so different just, you know, in the next town, let alone, you know, halfway around the world. It just, you know, it really, really is interesting how creative this meat robot that we are can be and what, growth and experience can lead us to come up with just in the next five minutes. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, very interesting in the you know not too distant future because right now the amount of people and the amount of money involved in biohacking is pretty small. I mean, like I know pretty much everyone else who's doing research in this area and the amount of funds people have to research is tiny really. Like I spend thousands of dollars on research, maybe tens of thousands and like compared to the real research in the real world, like with big companies, that's just nothing. And I think at the point where the big companies start getting involved, when they actually see this as viable, the amount of money that's going to be poured into research is going to be crazy. And the amount of sort of progress, like we've been like some of these people like me and other people have been working on this for, you know, several years and we make these tiny incremental steps. But when you get huge research teams devoted to it, I think we're going to see like, huge jumps just within a few years and so i think the sort of implants that will be available at that point it's going to be crazy how fast things happen mm -hmm. yeah especially if you can get big pharma involved in it because they throw millions of dollars into research all the time and they don't always be able to get everything back or they make so much more yet they're left with you know, diminishing returns on new areas of research. They complain about it all the time, yet they don't really look further further down the road as far as how extreme they can take their research yet. They're, they're more interested in what yeah. new plants, what new chemicals they can use to create drugs. Well, why not look further into technology instead of just drugs? For sure. And just like a month or two ago, I saw the anniversary of, like, the 10-year anniversary of the very first iPhone. And it's crazy, I think, 10 years ago, the very first iPhone came out. Before then, we just had, like, feature phones and stuff. And if you think 10 years, how, how much smartphones have improved, I mean, think how much 10, how much 10, how much progress of implants could happen in 10 years if we had, like, that kind of research and like, that many engineers working on it and stuff. I think we should go from oh, hey, cool, I can, you know, pay for something at the checkout with my hand to I can totally surf the net without ever, you know, needing to open my eyes type thing within 10 years. It would be totally feasible. Mm -hmm. 
think it's a case of um, when when big companies compete, the, the customer wins. Quote something like that, because eventually they they compete with each other and develop better and better things. I think um, uh, an interesting thing as well um, with the stuff that you're doing is you seem to be also creating some some hardware and software components that go with some of your product and I've always sort of thought for a long time there's there's so much development in terms of the type of implant etc etc the the software and the, the hardware support for this has always been it's almost like outsourced so like you know you look at the Yale locks or you look at the Samsung locks instead of instead of things like oh we now have this new software that allows you to do this and this and this I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of software going with hardware developments yeah so like that was a big part of like having the rewritable RFID chips, the ones that you can just copy a existing one to, because up until that point, you got an implant and you had, then you had to like either change the locks to suit your implant or go to the system admin and ask to have your chip ID added to the system. And that was like a huge barrier because like a lot of companies were like, well, this is weird. We don't want to add your system. Maybe it's not secure or, you know, the amount of work to buy a new lock. And that was quite, you know, it sort of hugely reduced the potential use for a lot of people. And so that being able to copy a card, you didn't need permission to do it. You didn't need sort of, you don't need a hardware, like any other hardware. You can just, you know, copy the existing card. And I think that's sort of a big part of what I'm trying to do is make things actually usable for ordinary people. Cause it's all very well to be like, well, you can theoretically open your you know door with this to being actually and this is the one-step process to actually being able to use it. I think that's a big part of it, trying to make it actually accessible to people and not just a, this is theoretically possible, to being like, this is easily done type thing. It's a big deal for, like, for programmers and stuff, maybe they don't care so much, they are able to do it themselves. But for a lot of people, we need to make it so that it's as simple as using a smartphone or anything else, that they can actually take advantage of the possibilities. So one one of the missions of us eventually when we find some free time wherever that's found is to create sort of like a, it was the DMPU, which is the sort of the university behind the Dangerous Minds podcast. So um, getting programmers and people that understand how to build these things to not only give them to the end user, but also to teach them how, how to develop solutions in the future. Yeah, I mean, that's another part of it is to get companies to maybe support it better because, yeah, like I said, a lot of businesses wouldn't be willing to add a new card to their system. But if we could get systems that sort of supported that natively, we could easily add them. That might be another solution. Yeah, just getting better support and getting better usability of these things. So I think it's a big part of getting wider adoption. And it'd be nice to have a truly interactive platform uh, similar to what uh, Grindhouse had mentioned, like a Grindduino, to where you can build on it to be able to create new implants, new uh, senses, uh, so to speak, based on this basic platform that just it would be more of an open source software and the hardware would be uh, something they could then provide uh, as far as uh, more of a product. But it, it just seems like getting to that type of point, it's almost a... Uh, very difficult even down to you know just coming out with the very basic type of things even like north sense uh they, they've had a lot of struggles with that but they're getting ready to release i believe a, a new sense here pretty quick um hoping to get uh livia 
back to give us some basic information on that uh, as soon as they're ready to release it. Just so much going on. Yeah, I think a lot of... Uh, just wish that there was more of an open platform that allows people, more people to get involved and build upon it. Just to, if you can get more people interested, that, that increases a market share and involvement that way. Yeah, like you said, like getting more people interested because I think like the success of a lot of these things like the Arduino and the Raspberry Pi, I mean, obviously the creators of it are very talented and that's, you know, a you know, big part to them, but part of it is also the open source community. It's having enough people sort of using it and building upon it to make it like really successful how to solve because right now the grinding community is so small that it's very difficult to try and sort of get that momentum, that community around a particular platform. So I think that's something that will also need to be solved at some point. And that's where we're going to hit the pause button. Be sure to tune in next time for the conclusion of our conversation with Alex Smith of CyberEyes.me, which will focus on InfoSec. A special thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us today. If you want to learn more about our weekly explorations, check out www.dangerousminds.io for more information. While you're there, be sure to check out how you too can join us on this journey as we dive further into the tech, the projects, and the people behind them within this rapidly growing community of biohacking, grinding, citizen science, implantable technology, and network security. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments. You are welcome to find us at www.dangerousminds.io, on IRC at hashtag DangerousMinds on Freenode, and our Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com slash DangerousMindsPodcast. And perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and or projects you're exploring. Until next time, was higher than science could ever devise. This is a neural interface. We're going to stick it in your face. Still it in your brain and interlace. There's an arms war on and we're going to win the race. Leave everything in the race. Bring the base. Man.